Strange Stories UK here again, speaking from a new studio, hopefully soundproofed, without a door at the moment. This is called the Seddon Barrow Podcast. I first recorded this in August last year, 2019, but I wasn't totally happy with the uh, finished article, so I've decided to record it again. Anybody that knows the George Orwell essay, The Decline of the English Murder, uh, will remember this is one of the famous English murders, the Frederick Seddon murder. Miss Eliza Mary Barrow was considered by most people that knew her a strange person. Five foot four inches, a stout woman of Irish descent. Superstitious, suspicious, selfish and uninformed. At the time of the events to be explained, she was 49 years of age and had quarrelled with almost all of her friends and relatives. No doubt today she would have been said to have been suffering some kind of mental illness. She dressed badly, she was parsimonious in her habits and had formerly abused alcohol and still enjoyed a drink of brandy. She was partially deaf a deafness that heightened her suspicious nature. She was quick to like and quick to dislike and keen to have her own way. Miss Barrow had adopted a young boy when he was at the age of three. Ernie Grant, of whom she was very fond. She loved him as if he were her own child. She would take him to school each day and he was a constant companion he called her the pet name of Chicky. Miss Barrow had been a close friend of Ernie's mother and family with whom she lived at 43 Roderick Road, Hampstead. Before this she had lived with Ernie's maternal grandmother. Mr Grant died in 1906 and Mrs Grant died in 1908 of alcoholism, leaving two young children as orphans. Ernie Grant had a sister, Hilda, who went to live with another relative and who was then put into an orphanage. Although Mrs Grant and Miss Barrow had been close, they would have, been, they would have had terrible drunken arguments. They would throw things at each other. Miss Barrow had known the family well since 1896 when she first went to stay with Mrs Grant's mother. When she died in 1902, Barrow moved in with Mrs Grant Mrs Grant's brother, Robert Hook, although ten years younger than Miss Barrow, they had become sweethearts. Miss Barrow was virtually one of the family. After Mrs Grant's death, Miss Barrow went to live with her cousins, the Vondores. She lived there for several months until she fell out with them over some trivial matter. It was suggested she did not, the f she did not like the food that she was given. Mrs. Vonderay later said that Barrow had been given a week's notice when she left. They had not exactly quarrelled, but Barrow had had one of her moods on and was not speaking to anyone. There was no cause for her leaving. I used to see her quite frequently when I was out. We were on friendly terms, said Mrs. Vonderay. Miss Barrow, who was relatively wealthy for the time, was very careful of her money. And although she could afford a good standard of living, a good standard of housing, 
she preferred to do things on the cheap. Although she kept on reasonably good terms with her cousins, the Vandereys, she decided to rent rooms of facilities where she could cook for herself, something she was not used to doing. But she was going to take Mr and Mrs Hook with her. Mrs Hook was to teach Miss Barrow how to cook and how to look after her house. Miss Barrow answered an advertisement in a newspaper placed by Mr Seddon for unfurnished upper floor of his house at 63 Tollington Park, Finsbury Park. 63 Tollington Park still exists today, but the house has been subdivided into flats. When Miss Barrow took the upper floor, there were four rooms, two bedrooms, a living room and a kitchen. In the rest of the house there was a basement, a ground floor, each with a bay window and two upper floors, each with three windows facing the street. There was a small garden and a conservatory to the rear. In total the house had 14 rooms. Seddon was living in the house with his wife and family of five children and his father. Seddon had purchased the house as a speculation but having failed to rent it out, as he had done so with his other properties, rather than let it stand vacant, he moved his family in until he could make a profit. Seddon subdivided some of the 14 rooms of the house, putting in partitions for separate rooms for his household and the one servant girl they employed. This allowed him to rent the upper floor to Miss Barrow for 12 shillings a week. Seddon now had the house virtually paying for almost the whole £200 mortgage he was paying. Seddon had paid a total of £320 for this house in 1909. It was said that those that lived in Tollington Park during the early 20th century were proud to do so, as most people had come from more humble origins and socially they could be seen to be moving upwards in a very class-conscious society. Mr Frederick Henry Seddon was aged 40, his wife 37, his father who lived with them was 69, he had five children, William 17, Margaret 16, Frederick 15, Ada 8 and born during July 1911 was baby Lily. Seddon had various income streams Prior to 1909 he had lived at South End for a year before taking the house and a shop at Seven Sisters Road, North London. There he had a business which he ran with his wife as a lady's wardrobe. This was basically a second-hand clothes business for women. At the end of 1909 Seddon fell out with his wife and they had separated for five months and sold the business at a loss. It was thought that Mrs Seddon had been taking money from the business without Seddon's knowledge. Seddon was a sharp businessman. He had a sum of cash sufficient to invest in other property. He claimed to have eventual control of 17 properties, which he let out. Seddon's main job was an insurance superintendent for the London and Manchester Industrial Insurance Company. He was superintendent of collectors and canvassers in North London. He was known as a hard-working, no-nonsense Lancastrian businessman 
who had worked hard all of his life to improve his position. He was not a snob. He was not afraid to turn his hand to any kind of money-making, be it a petty commission for passing someone's business to the letting of a house. Seddon was determined to improve his and his family's position in society. Mr Seddon charged the insurance company he worked for five shillings a week as rent for his basement, which he used as an office. Seddon was thought an honest man. His employers allowed him to pay their money into his bank account each week and send them a cheque on afterwards. It was said of Seddon, Mr Seddon, that he was a man who knew the price of everything but the value of nothing. He was a cold, hard man who had a jaunty and overweening confidence in his sharpness and cleverness. For Mr Seddon, money was his god. Seddon is said to have abused women to who he let his properties out to by having constant access to the houses and visiting them when their husbands were away. Seddon was also said to abuse his position with women who he had sold insurance policies to. Formerly a teetotaler, during 1911, he had acquired a taste for alcohol, which he sometimes drank to excess. Seddon had been a local preacher, but was now too busy to continue in that role, a lay preacher. His wife was thought not to be on particularly good terms with her husband, who was said to have a controlling influence. Seddon had a controlling personality. When Miss Barrow took the upper floor of 63 Tollington Park, it was said that she was looking forward to being part of a little family, staying with the Hooks, who were down on their luck, and they were to live there rent-free with Barrow, and Ernie, the seven-year-old boy, who was a nephew to Hooks. Hook had been employed as an engine driver, and had known Miss Barrow since 1896. They had virtually become family, and both Hook and Miss Barrow had a tendency to be argumentative, especially after a few drinks. Hook was said to have been the man who said what he liked and liked what he said, and Miss Barrow was quick to take offence. When she came to Tonington Park, Barrow was alleged to have been in a possession of a considerable amount of gold, although there was no trustworthy evidence what the actual amount was but probably at least £500. She distrusted banks and would change money into gold as soon as she could. Barrow also was the owner of £1,600 in India stock shares, the lease of a public house called the Buck's Head, and a barber shop which adjoined the public house. I think they were in Camden. Barrow paid... 12 shillings and sixpence rent each week to Seddon for her rooms and seven shillings to Seddon's daughter Maggie for attending upon her, looking after her like a servant. Although she bought her own food, her income was far in excess of her expenditure. She was known to be a frugal spender. Miss Barrow distrusted banks and had been spooked by some recent bad publicity on banks. The Burbeck Bank had folded and some others were said to be in trouble. At the same time, the Chancellor of the time, David Lloyd George, produced a budget in 1909 
raising taxes to pay for welfare reforms, such as old age pensions, making her even more determined to transfer her wealth into gold, as she felt that gold will always hold its value. There was something of a slump in house prices. They'd taken a tumble. That's why Seddon was able to buy Tollington for the bargain price of £320. Miss Barrow and the Hooks and Ernie Grant had moved on the f- July the 14th, 1910. But within a couple of weeks, Seddon gave them notice to quit after he said that he was disturbed by their arguments after Hulk alcohol was consumed. Miss Barrow went to see Seddon and told him she was afraid of Hook, who had been threatening her. Seddon then said that Barrow and Ernie Grant could stay, but the Hooks had to move out. The Hooks were handed a note from Seddon telling them to move out at once. They never saw Barrow again. The whole thing seemed to have been rushed and managed by Seddon. Seddon had given a quasi-legal touch to the eviction by tacking to Hook's door a notice to quit. Signed F. Seddon, landlord and owner. Seddon claimed that Hook was cruel to Miss Barrow and threatened to take the boy away with him unless he did as he wanted. Seddon claimed that she was scared of him. Hook had also claimed that the furniture in Miss Barrow's room belonged to his late sister and he wanted compensation for it and the expense of moving. The most likely truth is that Hook and Barrow were so familiar with each other that they felt they could argue without lasting consequence. But when they did so in Seddon's house, he wanted to put a stop to it, as they did not want an unruly house. There are two streams of thought. Even Seddon forced the Hooks out to keep a vulnerable, wealthy spinster under his roof to try to get to her money or that he was her protector against a former bullying lover who was taking advantage of the fact that she was close to his family and had adopted his nephew. Could it be that Seddon had drove a wedge between them, as Hook was wary of him, sensing that he was a money grabber? Barrow did pay Hook's expenses for moving, and Hook felt that he was still on good terms with Barrow, although they never met up again. Certainly the Hooks leaving left Barrow isolated in a house where they were her only real friends. Seddon claimed that Barrow was worried about her investments and would often cry with the worry of them. She was worried about her India stock, which had paid 108 pence a share and the price was down to 94 so that her £1,600 of stock had cost her 1780 She was also worried about the leasehold of the public house and the barber shop that was causing her problems. She did not want the worry of them any more. Seddon soon gained influence over Miss Barrow. Miss Barrow had the run of the Seddon house, but preferred to sit in the kitchen and chat with the charwoman and the servant girl. She took the boy to school and back each day and seemed to get on very well with the Seddon family. Miss Barrow was spooked by how Lloyd George government wanted to raise taxation rates and was worried about her holdings, that they could be under threat from greater tax demands. 
Over discussions with Miss Barrow, Seddon ascertained that she would like to get rid of all of her holdings and purchase an annuity, as a friend of hers and Mrs Smith had done. Seddon warned Miss Barrow that such an annuity died with her, but she said that that did not concern her, as she had only herself to think about, as her friends and family had treated her so badly. She told Seddon that if she could get an annuity of between £2.10 and £3 a week, she would be pleased. Seddon claimed that he advised her to employ a solicitor, but Miss Barrow did not want to pay, that, pay their fees. Miss Barrow was persuaded to hand over her £1,600 India stock for Seddon to invest on her behalf receiving in return from Seddon a remission on her rent and an annuity. No written agreement was ever found. She seems to have been a very unwise woman. She was then said to have done the same thing with her leasehold property she owned. This signed to Seddon, who raised her annuity. Miss Barrow was receiving £10 a month from Seddon in return for all of her investments, which were now in Seddon's ownership. Worried about her other savings at Finsbury and the City of London Savings Bank, Miss Barrow then withdrew all of her savings from that bank, which amounted to £216, which she paid to her in two bags of 100 sovereigns and 16 sovereigns. It was thought that Barrow now had a considerable sum at the house. She had about £500 in gold and notes, before she withdrew the £216. So the amount she had in cash at the house in today's values would be worth about £65,000. Although prices are difficult to quantify over time, as the house at 63 Tonnington Park that Seddon paid £320 for in 1909 would be worth about £2 million today. Seddon claimed that the Barrow had given him a gold ring as he had paid the solicitor's feed for organising the transfer of her stock and leases to him. Seddon also had a passion for gold. He had two safes within the house, one in his bedroom for personal use and one in the office in the basement for business. He was said to always carry about gold from one safe to the other as well as going through his accounts and counting sovereigns in the manner of a miser. Seddon could have afforded to pay cash for the house but he was that he was living in, but took a mortgage so as to have cash to invest in other ventures. He wanted to have enough gold and cash to pay off the house if anything happened to him so his wife and children could continue living there. Mrs Seddon was said to be an attractive woman, with some good taste, a gentle manner, but rather weak in character, and ruled by her husband. I have put a photograph of her on the Facebook site. Mrs Seddon is thought by some to have played the weak character of a hard-worked wife of five children as a cover for her true personality, which could be described as cunning and controlling. It was later shown that she was not as honest as she made out. 
In total, Miss Barrow lived for 14 months at the Seddons, from July 1910 to September 1911. During this time, she made over to Seddon all of her India stock shares, the leaseholds of a public house, the Buck's Head in Camden, and a barber shop, which was next door to the pub. During that period, 35 £5 notes known to have been paid to Miss Barrow were traced to the possession of either Mr or Mrs Seddon, who claimed that Miss Barrow asked them to change them change each note she was received into gold sovereigns. Mrs Seddon was proved to have given false names and addresses when changing £5 notes, although it was never proved that she was doing anything dishonest. During August 1911, Miss Barrow went with the Seddons for a few days in South End. There was some dispute as to whether Miss Barrow left her gold at the house when she went on holiday. There was just a servant girl there, Mary Charter, and there was some building work that was being undertaken at the house. It would not have been wise to leave a large amount of money in the house whilst they were away at South End. On their return from South End on the 1st of September, Miss Barrow was taken ill with what was thought to be epidemic diarrhoea. She died 13 days later on the 14th of September, having been attended throughout by Dr. Swan of Highbury Crescent, the family doctor of the Seddons. Dr. Swan issued a death certificate stating the cause of death was epidemic diarrhoea and exhaustion, although he had not attended Barrow on the day of her death, although he had seen her the day beforehand. The weather was exceedingly hot, and the body was not in a good state, so it was quickly removed to the undertaker's mortuary and was buried at Islington Cemetery, East Finchley, on the Saturday. On the night Miss Barrow died, the Seddons went out for a night at the music hall in Islington, which was thought to indicate that they were not too upset. However, it had been a trying time during Miss Barrow's illness, the heat of the house, which smelt so bad, and Miss Barrow kept soiling her bed, there was a plague of flies. The room was constantly being cleaned and carbonic soaked sheets were hung around the sick bed. During this time Miss Barrow had been very demanding, and given her cranky personality, when she died it was possible that the Seddons just needed some distraction. The Seddon children and Ernie had all been sent to stay away at South End, while Seddon dealt with Mrs. Barrow, Miss Barrow's death. He had arranged with the undertaker to give her the least expensive funeral possible, for which he received the commission. Seddon knew that Barrow had a family, fault at, a family vault at Highgate, but said he thought it was full. It wasn't. After Miss Barrow died, Seddon claimed that he carried out a search of her room, but could only find four pounds and ten shillings, so had difficulty in paying for the funeral expenses. Seddon told the undertaker that he still had to contact their relatives, but thought it unlikely they would come to the funeral as they had fallen out quite badly.
Seddon claims that he had wrote to Frank Vonderay to his Finsbury Park address. Although they had moved, the letter should have been forwarded on, but it, was n- but it never arrived. It would have been easy for Seddon to have sent someone round to the Vonderay's address, but he claimed that they had been rude to his family in the past. A door was slammed in the face of his daughter, although the Vonderays claimed that the wind slammed it shut. Anyhow, the result was that the Vonderays did not get to hear of Miss Barrow's death, and as a result did not attend the funeral. Before Miss Barrow was buried, two locks of her hair were kept as keepsakes, one for Hilda and one for Ernie. The Vonderays eventually got to hear of Miss Barrow's death after being told by Mary Chatter, the Seddon's scullery maid. They called round to see Seddon on the 21st of September 1911. They complained that they were not informed of the funeral. They asked about Miss Barrow's investments and Seddon told him that he had disposed of them to, she had disposed of them to purchase an annuity. The Vonderays asked why she was not buried in the family vault as it wasn't full up. Seddon replied he was not aware of the fact that she could be moved into the vault. Mrs Vonderay said that whoever persuaded her to part with her money must have been a very clever person. The Vonderays went home and a family council was called. Frank Vonderay, his brother and their wives discussed the mysterious suddenness of Miss Barrow's illness and decided that the two wives should interview Seddon the next morning and discover more of the circumstances of her death. When the two women arrived, they were shown into the dining room and they waited some time before Seddon came in to see them. Seddon was calm, collected and self-assured, although his wife displayed great nervousness. Seddon said he didn't have much time to spare and he hoped they would be brief. When his wife tried to speak, he silenced her, saying, Now, my dear, you're too much upset to speak about anything. He explained his wife was too upset to speak, and he would tell the ladies whatever they needed to know. It is unknown if Mrs. Seddon had a guilty conscience. She may have had a suspicion that not all was well, the manner of death, the haste of the funeral... Seddon asked the women to explain who they were and what their relation were they had to Miss Barrow. He showed them the letter written to Mr. Vonderay, which was not received. The letter gave details of the funeral that had been held the previous Saturday and added that a few days before her death, Miss Barrow had made a will leaving everything she owned to Hilda and Ernest Grant. It also appointed Seddon as a sole executor. The will was witnessed by the Seddon, his father, and Mrs. Seddon. Seddon had everything prepared as if he was expecting to be asked questions. A copy of the letter, a funeral card, a copy of the will, all together in an envelope. Seddon appeared brusque and indifferent to the feelings of Miss Barrow's relatives and conducted the interview in a scarcely veiled antagonism. 
Later, it was suggested that Sed if Seddon had been more conciliatory and expressed a little more sorrow and stage managed the interview more deftly, things would have turned out much better for him. For example, when one of the women asked if they would if he would speak to Mr. Ernest Vonderay, he said, I am a businessman. I think I've wasted quite enough time on this matter. I really can't be bothered answering questions from inquisitive people. The two women had gone to 63 Tonnington Park with a misguided idea that because of their relationship with Miss Barrow, they were her closest kin, they could take possession of Miss Barrow's effects. However, if the will was genuine, they could not, without the permission of the executor, who was of course Seddon. Their suspicions escalated when they realised they were believing the house empty-handed. Seddon later claimed that the Vonderays had spoken about Miss Barrow in a negative way, saying that she had spat at them before she'd left, and as a result, they had showed no affection towards her. Seddon further claimed that the Vonderays had not shown him and his family proper respect. It seemed that Seddon was being difficult with them. The Vonderays had asked, what was to become of the boy? Seddon said that there would be a home with him for the boy. On October the 10th, Ernest Vonderay and a friend went to see Seddon. Ernest had been making closer inquiries into the matter and his detective work told him that Barrow was the leaseholder of a public house and a barber shop. There was also a sum of money in the bank and a large sum in ready cash that Miss Barrow had. The investigations were aimed at discovering how much Seddon would have benefited from Barrow dying. Ernie Grant had the previous week come to the Vonderay's house, but he was accompanied by one of Seddon's children, and suspicions were deepened because they saw the chaperonage as an attempt to prevent them from questioning Ernie as to the matter of Barrow's death. Seddon must have realised that the Vonderay family had suspected him of cheating Barrow out of her money and decided to adopt a lofty and high-handed manner, which he had used with other disagreeable people in this house business in the past. This method had usually prevailed. Seddon left his guests waiting for 20 minutes before he came into the room with his wife. Seddon was clearly annoyed by this visit and told them that he did not see why he should give them any further information. Although if their solicitor decided to contact him, then all would be explained. Ernest ignored Seddon's approach and questioned him as to who owned the Buck's Head public house. Seddon admitted that he owned it, saying he had bought it on the open market, which was not the truth. Seddon had purchased the property of which he was the sole executor for his own benefit. He claimed he was the highest uh, bidder on the open market. Seddon misled the Vonderays. He did not tell them that it was him who paid the annuity, but did explain that the annuity had died with her, so Seddon kept all the stock 
and the lease of the two properties after paying Barrow for just one year. Seddon also said that the will left all her goods to her children, the children Ernie and Hilda, and he was executor. Seddon also informed them that Barrow insisted that nothing was to be left to any relatives who she felt had treated her badly. When questioned further, Seddon said that he would answer questions through solicitors. He had done nothing wrong in regard to Miss Barrow's finances. As Seddon refused to answer any more questions to the Vonderais, they told the police of their suspicions. Although the police are said to receive many complaints regarding suspicions over inheritance and sudden death, they took this case seriously. It was decided by the coroner that it was necessary for an exhumation to be carried out for a second post-mortem on the body. This was carried out on the 14th of November 1911. According to the doctor's certificate, Miss Barrow had died of heart failure resulting from epidemic diarrhoea. Similar symptoms would be produced by arsenic poisoning. It was questioned that as Mr Seddon had benefited so much from Miss Barrow's death and not cooperated with her relatives, could he be responsible for her death in any way? The post-mortem was carried out by Bernard Spilsbury in the presence of toxicologist Dr Wilcox. Certain organs were removed for analysis. 23rd of November 1911, an inquest on the body was held and Mr and Mrs Seddon both gave evidence. On the 29th of November, further examination of the body was made and arsenic was found to be present. Dr Wilcox gave his opinion that more than two grains were present in the body at the time of death and so the death was considered acute poisoning meaning that a large dose was ingested less than three days before the death. On the 4th of December Mr Seddon was arrested by the Chief Inspector Alfred West who searched Seddon's home in the presence of Mrs Seddon finding evidence of Miss Barrow's property in the Seddon safe, including sovereigns and jewellery. However, the gold was impossible to trace back to where it came from, and Mrs Seddon claimed that Miss Barrow had given the jewellery as a gift. As the police built up a case against Seddon, his wife was arrested on January the 15th, 1912, and both were committed to trial which began at the Old Bailey, on March the 4th, 1912. It was to prove a controversial trial and one of the longest heard at the Old Bailey up to that time, lasting 10 days. The first three days were taken up with the story you've heard so far. Miss Barrow's story, her life at 63 Tonington Park, her financial transactions, her illness and death, the court was told about arsenic poisoning, how it is tasteless, has no smell, and how it's possible to boil types of flypaper to extract enough poison to kill just with one flypaper. It was suggested that the poison could be extracted in a small quantity of water and taken with drink or food. 
It was not difficult to administer arsenic as a poison. Seddon suggested to his solicitor this could have been the way Miss Barrow was poisoned, as in her illness of epidemic diarrhoea which caused dehydration, in her confused state, and with a raging thirst, Miss Barrow may have drank the fly papers that were said to be soaking in saucers in her room, which had been placed there by Mrs. Seddon. Back in 1910, it was possible to buy two types of flypaper. The sticky flypaper, available in hardware shops today, and arsenic poison flypapers that had to be put in saucers with water. The flies drink the water and they fly away and die. There was said to be a plague of flies in Miss Barrow's room when she was ill. The weather was hot. The flies were attracted to the faeces and the urine that she expelled during her illness. Although the Seddon family insisted that they, uh, there were sources with flypapers in the room, the doctor who attended the room did not notice them. Nor did young Ernie, the young boy who virtually lived in the room. These were the only two independent witnesses. So it was never proved beyond, re beyond doubt that the flypapers were used in Miss Barrow's room, although it was proved that a member of the Seddon family had purchased flypapers. On day four of the trial, Bernard Spursby gave his evidence, in which he argued that the present preservation in which he found the body was very abnormal, and he was unable to account for, until Mr Wilcox's toxicology report when it became clear that it was due to arsenic in the body, which tends to preserve the internal organs. He also said that the skin of the face was brown and shriveled by pigmentation, which is often caused by arsenic. His opinion was that death was caused by acute arsenic poisoning, by one or more large doses which would have been more than two grains of the poison. During the trial, there were long discussions over the effects of arsenic poisoning. For example, if two grains were found in the body, a lot more would have been taken as the body expels arsenic very quickly. It was suggested that if two grains were found in the body, that would suggest that five grains had been taken. Spilsby was cross-examined by the famous defence barrister Marshall Hall who argued that the arsenic is sometimes used as a tonic, given the example of the Styrian peasants of Austria. It's also used as a cosmetic to give a clear complexion for women, although it's unlikely that Miss Barrow would have been interested in having a fair complexion. Such cases would call a chronic arsenic poisoning over time when the body builds up a tolerance Spilsbury argued that uh, these objections, uh, he argued them away, convincing the court that it was acute deliberate poisoning, as the telltale signs of chronic arsenic poisoning, such as running eyes and a rash, were absent from Miss Barra's body. Marshall Hall asked how the body would react to acute poisoning. It seems on the first day there would be symptoms. The first couple of hours, nausea, followed by vomiting, followed by a pain in the stomach. A few hours later, diarrhoea would develop. This would continue in severe form, almost up to the time of death, 
and the patient would develop a great thirst and later collapse. Epidemic diarrhea, aka the English cholera, was also discussed. It was remarked how similar the symptoms were to acute arsenic poisoning, and assuming a doctor was called in who neither knew or suspected arsenic poisoning, he could not be expected to identify arsenic poisoning as the cause of death. He would give the cause of death as epidemic diarrhoea. Spilsby escaped quite lightly from Marshall Hall's probing. Dr Wilcox had a much more torrid time with some clever questioning into the methods used to detect arsenic poisoning and in particular the Marsh test which was used to calculate the level of arsenic in the body. Wilcox stood his ground and eventually convinced the court that Miss Barrow had died of acute arsenic poisoning. Marshall Hall had tried to convince the jury that Miss Barrow had ingested the arsenic herself by mistake while suffering from epidemic diarrhoea. He argued that Miss Se- Mr. S- Miss Mrs. Seddon, I beg your pardon, said that Miss Barrow had wanted to get rid of a mass of flies in her room. She particularly requested that she should not buy the nasty sticky fly paper as the flies get stuck and keep buzzing. He then suggested that when confused and alone with a great thirst, Miss Barrow may have drunk saucers of water which contained the fly papers and so ingested the arsenic herself. However, this was a little unlikely, especially if Miss Barrow herself had suggested the non-sticky fly paper. It should also be noted that there was a great deal of time taken in the trial discussing how and where and by whom the fly papers were obtained. One of the chemists who was suspected of supplying did not want to get involved with the case and was forced to attend. He should have written down the names of anybody who purchased the poisoned flypaper, but admitted to do so. Maggie Seddon had purchased the flypapers. If he was guilty, Mr Seddon would have been very careful not to be associated with the flypapers. Mr Seddon was never seen touching any flypapers. Mr. Seddon then took the witness box for the best part of three days. It has been said that Seddon did not come across well in the witness box, being too clever and anxious to pit his wits against the prosecution. He came across as hard and uncaring. However, that's not a crime, and in retrospect a lot of criticism against Seddon seems unfair. It is true that he had an answer for all of the financial transactions, and indeed an answer for everything. If he had been guilty of the poisoning, he had been clever enough to have distanced himself from any blame. If he was guilty, Seddon had taken great precautions not to have been seen to have any dealings with the poisoning. Barrow had died on the Thursday and was buried by the Saturday. Ignoring that the family vault, putting her into a common grave which is a grave plot where those without a family plot or vault are interred with others, dying at the same time as them. It could be argued that Seddon was anxious to get the body underground as soon as possible, for once buried an exhumation could be difficult. 
It was later argued by the defence. Why didn't he have the body burnt? But Seddon may have taken a gamble and done this, but it would have taken more time and the relatives may have got to hear of the death and insisted on the body being taken to the family vault. And this would have made Seddon look suspicious. Seddon, if guilty, depended on the fact that no person had seen him with the poison. He later said, I am willing to admit that the woman died of poison. I admit that I benefited considerably by her death. But you cannot prove that I gave her poison. I may have brought food to her, and unless the prosecution can, beyond all reasonable doubt, prove the poison was in that food and placed there by me, you must return a verdict of non not guilty. However, the circumstantial evidence against Seddon was quite damning, and it seems that he managed to drain all of her money from her agreeing to pay her an annuity that he calculated would be for about 20 years. But she died within a year, and with her dying, he no longer had to pay her an annuity. It's a gamble, and she may live to be a hundred, in which case he would have been out of pocket. But she died within a year, and then he tried to bamboozle the family with paperwork and fact sheets to hide the fact that she, he did not do well from her death. Seddon may have got away with the crime if he had been satisfied with the shares and the leases he obtained from Miss Barrow, but he was greedy. He wanted to keep the chest of gold and jewellery, and she had quite a tidy sum, perhaps £65,000 in cash in today's money. But the question remains, did Seddon ever have this cash? Was the gold found at the house after Barrow's death? Hers or Seddon's? Marshall Hall throws doubt on whether Miss Barrow had the money in her room. There were suggestions that the money may have been stolen, or that Miss Barrow, being such an odd personality, did something else with the money. Did she store it away somewhere else? Did she give it away? Probably not. Marshall Hall doubted that she would have left so much gold in the house and gone to Southend on holiday. It is known that Miss Barrow drew, had drawn out £260 in gold on the 11th of June 1911. But this also seems to have disappeared. Gold was found in Seddon's safe but it's impossible to say where a gold sovereign came from, because they're all the same. Seddon did suggest that the trunk that Barrow kept her money in was frail. He was wary of how much gold there was in the house, and when he told uh, Barrow of his fears, she was angry at him and did not talk to him for a week. Seddon said there were workmen doing repairs and cleaners that had access to the room where the trunk was kept. If Seddon didn't take the money, he showed a remarkable lack of interest in it. He knew that she had a large amount of gold and cash, and he knew that she drew the money out of her savings account. He also paid her £10 a month, 
which she was unlikely to have spent. She hadn't left the house after he paid her the last instalment. So why wasn't that found after her death? Did Seddon take it, or his wife, or someone else? Seddon, who was so switched on regarding money and making it work for him, must have been curious about Miss Barrow's wealth, although he claimed he never gave it a thought. Seddon said in court that he didn't even think of what she had done with her money, as she was such a peculiar woman. Seddon's answer when in the witness box were very weak. When asked, did it cross your mind that someone may have stolen her money? Seddon replied, no, I don't think evil of people like that. I'm not so ready to think evil of people. When being cross-examined, Seddon was asked why he did not get an independent person into the house before he opened Miss Barrow's cash box and why he had not sent for the doctor on the night of the 13th of September when Miss Barrow claimed she was dying. Seddon had admitted in court that his condition seemed worse her condition seemed worse that night, and there were doctors living close by the house who could have easily attended. But he said he didn't think a doctor was necessary. When accused of taking Miss Barrow's money after she died, Seddon replied, What do you mean? The prosecution suggesting that I am dealing with a deceased woman's gold, that I should bring it down from her room at the top of the house into the office, into the basement, in the presence of my ass uh, assistants, and counted up. Is it feasible? I don't want to argue with you, but you know sometimes people do very foolish things. Well, I am not a degenerate. That would make out that I was greedy, inhuman monster, or something with a very degenerate mind to commit a vile crime, such as the prosecution suggests bringing the money down and counting it in the presence of my two assistants and flouting it like that. The suggestion is scandalous. I would have had all day to have counted it. The final snide sentence showed that Seddon was becoming uncomfortable with the questioning and was beginning to show some temper. It was not well received that the watch and jewellery that Seddon claimed was a gift from Miss Barrow was not altered by the jeweller until just after Miss Barrow had died. Although the claim that they were gifts months before her death, this would suggest that the Barrow had not given it as a gift, but they took the items after she died. Throughout the trial, Seddon kept up an un unemotional, detached attitude, which he had shown from the time of his arrest. Maybe it was a coping mechanism from an innocent person dumbfounded by his events. Mrs Seddon, who had much more opportunity to poison Barrow and had much more day-to-day -day contact with her, gave the impression of a sad and dejected figure and acted humbly under questioning while she was portrayed as the innocent wife to the all-male jury, using her femininity and her motherly role to show that she would be incapable of murder. In his closing speech for the defence, which came before that of the prosecution, 
Marshall Hall said that this case would be much easier in Scotland, where there are, there are the options of guilty, not guilty, and not proven. Because clearly this case is not proven. Although it's clear that Mrs Seddon prospered from her death and she died of acute arsenic poisoning, Mr Seddon has never been alone with Miss Barrow, never been shown to have purchased or handled or administered any poison. So unless you, the jury, are satisfied that the case is proved against the prisoner, and Marshall clearly thinks that it's not, then the verdict must be not guilty. Marshall Hall said that Barrow was a bit of a nuisance in the house, but she was always complaining of something. She was an eccentric, and when she was ill, she was always wanting attention. But there was no evidence of any wrongdoing against Mr. and Mrs. Seddon. Marshall Hall made the point that Seddon could have had the body cremated. He could have had the death certificate. There was no suspicion when she died. She could have been burnt before the relatives had realised that she was dead. If he was guilty of poisoning, surely that's what he would have done and destroyed any evidence that Miss Barrow had been poisoned. Marshall Hall admits that Seddon is in a difficult position, saying, assuming he is absolutely innocent, he granted an annuity calculated on something like 20 years' expectation of life and that life had genuinely fallen within 12 months. It looks as if he got the better of the woman, but that's not to cooperate with the relatives which puts him in a bad light. Then Marshall Hall argues that Miss Barrow's death was caused by somehow arsenic getting into her. But how did it get there? The prosecution will have to prove affirmatively that it got there through the Seddons. If they fail to do that, it's not guilty. Mr Rental was the barrister for defending Mrs Seddon, who seemed for the great part to pass under the radar, as all the attention seemed to be focused on her husband. The closing speech in her defence was that she had looked after Miss Barrow so well during her illness, always ready with her hot flannels to put on her stomach, working tirelessly around the house. She could not possibly be guilty of murder. Also, she'd kissed Miss Barrow as she lay in her shroud and placed a wreath of flowers on her coffin. Mr. Rental also asked the jury if they had ever been more had a more frank and open answers from a defendant. Although it could have been said the same for Seddon, it seemed the court was much more sympathetic to Mrs. Seddon than to her husband. The prosecution's closing speech started quite cleverly by agreeing with Marshall Hall, but in a very loaded way. Consider the following quote. The mere fact of these persons having committed theft or meanness or being guilty of, well, I can only say deplorable conduct, is not of itself of sufficient to convict any person of murder. The prosecutor, Sir Rufus Isaac, then argues that Marshall Hall does not dispute that there was arsenic in the body after death, although he argues 
that only helped cause her death, as she died of gastroenteritis, also known as epidemic diarrhoea, also known as English cholera, call it what you want. Hall would not have made that admission if he could have escaped from it, but there's no escaping the fact that she was poisoned, and the expert witnesses say that it was acute poisoning. So someone's responsible for Barrow's death. Who would have wanted her dead? Who had the opportunity to kill that person? Seddon is then painted as the man full of cunning and craft, driven by greed and covetousness. He tricked Miss Barrow into a bargain, not in her interest, without any solicitor, stockbroker or adviser being involved. He made the contact contract and drew up the document using his smattering of legal knowledge. It's impossible to explain what had become of Miss Barrow's money except the view that Seddon had got hold of it before her death. Between 40 and 50 persons had been called at the police court and at the court to testify against the Seddons. Miss Barrow, a shabbily dressed woman who spent little on herself, Isaacs argued that if she even spent a pound or even two pounds a week while staying at the Seddons, she, she should have still had 750 pounds hidden somewhere. Whereas the only money found on this woman the day she died was threepence. Seddon later found four pounds and ten shillings in her room. How could this be? Where was the money? Who had the opportunity to take it? If you come to the conclusion that the Seddons had dishonestly got Barrow's gold in notes, they must have dreaded the arrival of the day when they might be called upon to account for the money. So you have the overwhelming motive for desiring the woman's death. If you add to that the payment of the annuity, which had to be made as long as she was alive, you get further reason for desiring her death. Then you have the means, by the purchase of the flypapers, to extract arsenic. A member of the Seddon family bought the flypapers, but no one has seen them used as the purpose they had been intended. Then there is the will signed by three days before her death, when Barrow was said by the doctor to be in a feeble state of mind. Isaacs agrees that the case rests upon circumstantial evidence. But if that evidence is scrutinised, examined and investigated carefully, what conclusions does it suggest? It has been suggested by the defence that you should not convict on circumstantial evidence. But if criminals can only be convicted upon direct evidence of a crime, there would be the result of a vast number of crimes that would never ever be punished or even discovered. Then came the judge, Justice Bucknell summing up, which is quite extraordinary, as he virtually orders the jury to find Mrs. Seddon not guilty, saying, A sympathetic feeling for a female who stands charged with a willful murder of another female, I feel it, and every honest man must feel it. Do you think she, Mrs. Seddon, is lying? Well, if she is lying, she's doing it very cleverly. 
if you think she was telling the truth with regard to what took place on the night of the 13th and the 14th of September, with regard to the last illness, I should not be astonished if you found her not guilty. It is said that Mrs. Seddon was an attractive woman. Did the judge fancy her? It's happened before. Consider the case of Mary Archer, who perjured herself when acting as a witness for her husband, Geoffrey Archer, Tory MP, Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party. He slept with a prostitute but claimed he had not. The judge, Mr Justice Caulfield, made a fool of himself in 1987, saying that Mrs Archer was a vision of elegance, fragrance and radiance, and could not believe that her husband would seek the company of a prostitute. In another case, not so high profile, a friend of mine swore he was excused a speedy conviction at a magistrate's courts because the lay magistrates fancied him. So this is a possible reason that Mrs Seddon was to escape conviction. After the trial, there was much gossip over the actions of Mrs Seddon, how she escaped the murder charge. A lot of people that lived near her and knew her had grave suspicions. The judge, Justice Bucknell, was not so well disposed against Mr Seddon, arguing that it was cupidity, the greed for money and possession, that had got him to court. The judge was damning against Seddon, that he was not truthful in his dealings with Mr Vonderay, when he was asking who supplied the annuity to Miss Barrow, who owned the public houses and the barber shop. The simple reason that Seddon did not tell was because he wanted to avoid a public inquiry. On the tenth day, the jury retired to consider their verdict. They were out for just one hour, finding Mr Seddon guilty and Mrs Seddon not guilty of the murder of Miss Barrow. At this point, Seddon turned and kissed his wife. He did not seem greatly perturbed or upset, and he relaxed somewhat when he realised that Mrs Seddon had been found not guilty. Perhaps he was glad that his children were to keep at least one parent. When asked if he had anything to say, Seddon gave the mason sign to the judge, a flat hand over the heart. Seddon then goes on that he doesn't know anything that he could say before the great architect of the universe, using Masonic language. He then carries out, carries on that he's innocent, he has a clear conscience, and he can explain all his actions and transactions. The judge replied, although there was no evidence that you were ever left alone with a deceased person, there was, in my opinion, ample evidence to show that you had the opportunity of putting poison in her food or medicine. You had a motive for the crime, and the motive was the greed of gold. The judge acknowledged that they both belonged to the same brotherhood, the Masons, and it's all the more painful to him, the judge, to say what he has got to say. But the brotherhood does not encourage crime, on the contrary, it condemns it. The judge said, I hope you made your peace with God. To which Seddon replied, I am at peace. Seddon put in his appeal, 
Among the reasons were, one, there was insufficient evidence that Barrow had died from acute arsenic poisoning. Two, there was no evidence that Seddon was ever in possession of poison. Three, there were some incorrect police procedures and some judge misdirection, and most interestingly the fact that Seddon and his wife were jointly charged with murder, and the evidence was directed at both of them, and there was no evidence upon which the jury could discriminate between them, so why was he found guilty and not his wife? The verdict is thus unreasonable and could not be supported have been supported by evidence. Well, this is a fair point, never been answered. But the appeal was unsuccessful, as was the petition for his innocence. Said never made any confession of any kind, and asserted his innocence until his death. Many things about the case remain a mystery. No one knows how Miss Barrow got arsenic in her system. Dr Wilcox believed in Seddon's guilt, but does not believe that he used any flypapers to poison her. It is the idea of flypapers which was introduced by Seddon himself. If... May, it may have been a deception that Beck fired. He may have used arsenic in the form of rat poison or weed killer to kill her, hoping the idea of fly po paper poisoning would cloud the issue. It is worth to remember that never in criminal history has there ever been a case where a convicted person has ever been detected in the act of administering a poison, either in food or otherwise. The poisoner relies on suspicion being equally attached to others, thus securing the benefit of doubt. Mrs Seddon's acquittal was a puzzle. Shortly after Seddon was hanged, Mrs Seddon spoke to the weekly dispatch. She gave an interview saying that she saw her husband giving poison to Miss Barrow and that he gave it to her on the night of her death and that he terrorised her into silence. Terrorised Mrs Seddon, that was, into silence. A rival publication investigated the matter and found that it was nonsense. The confession was untrue. Mrs Seddon had told the story for payment and had put an end to the gossip of neighbours who pointed out her as a murderess. This episode perhaps give some indication of her true character. Mrs Seddon appears to have been a manipulator and it is possible that she alone was the guilty party being exhausted looking after Miss Barrow and her children in a house that was overheated, stank of human waste, with plague of flies. She may have known of the money hidden by Barrow as she was the one that dealt with her on a day-to-day -day basis and nursed her through her illness. She may have stolen some of Barrow's money. Could she have just snapped and made her drink the poison and put sources with poison in the room as an alibi? Could she have told her husband that maybe Barrow drank the flypaper water in a confused state and said and had passed on that possibility to his solicitor? Seddon remained uninterested in money until the end, and on the sorry remained interested until the end, and on the afternoon before he was executed, 
he sent for a solicitor to ascertain what certain articles of his furniture had made at auction. He was most indignant when he learnt the low amount that they raised. Striking a table, he said, That's done it, as he was anxious for his wife to receive a good price. There were 7,000 people, a huge crowd outside the gates of Pentonville Prison, on the morning of the execution. Seddon did not know this as he was walked in silence to the place of execution. His body was buried within the prison grounds, a stone square inscribed with his initials and a date on a small pot of grass. The case remains one of interest as it is suggested that if Seddon had not given evidence himself, the Crown would have failed to prove a case sufficient to secure a verdict of guilty against him. Without his evidence, the jury would not have taken evidence against him for his cleverness and cool demeanour. The evidence was entirely circumstantial and concerned only with motive and opportunity. It was said to be the length of the chain rather than its strength that enabled the prosecution to bind Seddon. All of the evidence was directed against him and his wife. In fact, the evidence was more convincing against his wife. But the jury convicted him and acquitted her because of the way they came across in the witness box. It was claimed that the Crown had not succeeded in proving his guilt, but he had failed to prove his innocence. Within a few months, on the 4th of November 1912, Mrs Seddon remarried a James Donald Cameron and she emigrated with all her family to California. I could not discover the fate of Ernie Grant. Well, thank you for listening to uh, today's story. I'd like to thank... Uh, Damselfly for providing the background music and until next time I'll say goodbye goodbye